It's the final word, season 13, episode 9. It's Tuesday, the 29th of November, 2022, the day before the start of the Australian summer. And by that, I mean tomorrow is the first ball of the test summer. And we can measure the seasons in all different ways. There's the, the lunar calendar. There's the, the way we did it in Australia. Month by month, doesn't matter what the sun and moon say, summer starts on December 1. Don't or care about the, the celestial influence. We defy the stars. We will not listen <laughs> to them. Whatever's going on up there in the sky, not interested. What's happening down on the ground, that's what we're interested in. There's the Gregorian Ooh, calendar. We are, we are worried. What's going on in the grass? The 22 yards that matter most mm-hmm. of the Perth Stadium where apparently 12 millimetres of grass are going to be left on that track, which should mean that it's hauled and forced oh. uh, in Perth as also often between Australia and the West Indies when they came here. I was going through all of that, Jeff, and the first five times the Windies came to Perth, they won by a fucking mile. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of them was close, but but three of them were by an innings. And it was only turned around in, in more recent years in, in 2000, for example, when Australia did a job here and so it was the last couple of times as well. But yes, they've got a good record here. I know it's a different ground, a different time, different era, mm-hmm. different world really, as far as the West Indies are concerned. But nevertheless, um, I'm big Kev. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'm hopeful. I've got this hopeful period where I'm thinking, well, that West Indies pace attack, I, I, I think maybe if, if West Indies bat first, it might not go so well. But if they bowl first, you never know. Uh, often, often I have this optimism, which is then completely trashed by an Australian team being completely dominant. But the optimism that you want to see a proper contest, now is the point where it's still possible. I should say on the show later, we have joining us uh, Tanya Aldred and Matt Oldfield to talk about their new kids book. And I really enjoyed having a thumb through that. So I thought, why not get them on the show to talk about it, given that we're leading up to Christmas and and all the rest of it. So that'll be part two. Um, There's been a WBBL final run and one over the weekend, another Shield round. Uh, There's been bits and pieces going on in the UK. The England team are in Pakistan. It's all happening. Mm -hmm. Just to stick with the Test cricket before we uh, move on, though, Jeff. It's quite interesting to me that... This is a run of 15 test matches starting tomorrow. Like, it isn't just kind of like Australia playing the Windies in South Africa. It's There's five tests this summer. Then there's potentially a World Test Championship final if they do well there. Between all of that, there's four tests in India. Mm-hmm. And then there's five tests in England, the series that the Aussies haven't won over there, like outright won since 2001. Like, even test cricket sometimes can feel like it's out of context. Mm-hmm. This doesn't. This feels like we're, we're actually starting a pretty long run up in, in the traditional form of the game. Yep trademark and that's going to be a journey worth being on given that there's a bunch of guys who probably will retire or near enough to retire by the end of it so it's kind of like it was when we went to the 2015 ashes jeff where there were six retirements in and after that series Mm. it it feels like we're getting to the sort of the end of that cycle for this group of players who took over after 15. well especially the fuss bowling trio and the bowling quartet the stark cummins hazelwood lion that's been so consistently a presence since 2017-18. I mean, it's extraordinary how many matches those four have played together. You so rarely yeah. see that in any anywhere in Test history that you've got the same four bowlers who who are fit and able, but also who are in favour and selected time after time after time. So, you know, they'll, they'll have another summer ahead of them. Um, I don't imagine that quartet will be the ones playing in India, but they might well be the ones playing in England next year. Who knows? Right, so we'll go back to the Aussie stuff uh, later. We should start, though, Jeff, with the Women's Big Bash League final. Yeah. And I acknowledge we haven't covered the Big Bash, uh, the Women's Big Bash as much this year as we might have been in previous years on the podcast. That's been, I guess, a function of the, the clash that we were discussing last week that it has been hidden to an extent by the Men's 20-over World Cup and other commitments that we've had darting around the country. But um, at long last, only five years after I first said it would happen, mm-hmm. the Strikers have won the pennant. Yes, the Adelaide Strikers are there. I, I reckon, especially the first few years when we were doing a lot of women's Big Bash coverage, we were, we were always saying before each season, Adelaide Strikers look pretty good, pretty good lineup, <laughs> pretty promising. You know, they've, they've had different setups over that period of time. But they finally got one. They lost the last two finals, but they beat the Sydney Sixers who'd finished top. And I think what makes it feel quite special is looking at the number of players who've been there right from the beginning. Talia McGrath, mm-hmm. Amanda Wellington, Megan Shute, Tegan McFarlane, Bridget Patterson, 
they're all originals. They've all they've played all eight seasons. Those yep. players for the strikers. They've turned out again and again. Uh, I mean, some of them were star players from the beginning. Others have built as they've gone along. You know, Patterson's one of those. Had an influence in the the qualifying match to get them into the final, for instance. And then even the way they've recruited, you know, uh, Secret Life of Katie Mack has been there for, for four seasons. Laura Wolvart has been there for three. Madeline Penner as well. Darcy Brown coming through as their local star quick for three seasons as well. So they've been building and then they just added a couple of quality top-up players in Gemma Barsby last year who had an influence in the final as well with the ball and Deandra Dotton who was the most influential player. You can look at that semi and the final and say, well, Dotton made a bunch of runs, took key wickets. It was all about getting the retired West Indies star into that team. But they'd built this quality team already and she was the, the finishing piece in, in trade season, if you will. Yeah, that was that was my first thought as well. It's that the, what you're describing there. That there has been that consistent trunk within the side, and they have recruited well, um, which is pretty cool. And even someone like Talia McGrath, the captain, she's been a player like, almost reborn over the last two years, and that comes via the strikers, right? So she's a mm. a world champion in the 50 over format of the game. Had a great World Cup. Um, she was part of the winning women's Ashes side. Uh, last Australian summer. She's now got a Commonwealth Games gold medal, um, something Steve Ward didn't get when he went to the Commonwealth mm-hmm. Games in 1998. Talia <laughs> McGrath's got one of those. And now she's won a big bash, having been there from the start. She played a big role when uh, when Adelaide, or when South Australia rather, won the WNCL for the first time back. I think it was 15, 16 when she would have been a teenager still. So, um, But now very much um, at the at the crucial part of her career as far as her international status is concerned mm-hmm. and, and that's translating through to them winning what I hope will be the first of a number of trophies we've seen when sides have won the big bash the women's big bash they've gone on to be there a few times and yeah now they've got the monkey off the back so to speak um yeah good luck to them uh, trying to do it again and also like the bowling attack they they had to push back on in the final like that is a an international attack um, Sophie Eccleston best bowler in the world Lauren Cheadle played in a world cup Elise Perry she's won more World Cups than we've had hot dinners. Ash Gardner, who is on her day the most dynamic all-rounder in the world. Like, this isn't kind of a normal domestic attack. This is an international quality side that they have taken down at North Sydney Oval where they've played so much of their cricket over the last eight years. Yeah, Sydney Sixers fortress, if you will, the uh, the pink fortress of North Sydney Oval. And and also that, you know, they didn't stroll it, so they set the Sixers 148. And that's the kind of score that you would expect the Sydney Sixers to run down more often than not. And then it's all about the way the Adelaide Strikers bowl. Four for 16, they've got the sixes in the chase. And even yep. though there's some hitting down the order from the likes of Eccleston and Maitland Brown, it gets things close. You know, in the end, it's 10 runs the difference, but it wasn't necessarily as close as that throughout. Um, and the fact that they didn't lose their rag when they dropped catches. So Susie Bates got dropped twice in mm-hmm. and over off Darcy Brown. And then they follow up by dismissing Elisa Healy in the same over. Um, and it's So Madeline Penner put down one of the catches off Bates. And I think this is my favourite bit of the whole final is that she takes the screamer to dismiss Elisa Healy and the lip reading uh, it was pretty evident. She, she throws the ball down and just turns around and goes, fuck off, not to anybody in particular, <laughs> but just to her, I think just to herself because she dropped the catch previously and was so yeah. pumped up to take the other one. And from there, you know, they just keep going. Dotton comes on, bowls slower balls, foxes a cup, gets Bates out and gets Gardner out. And suddenly, you know, they're absolutely teetering the Sydney Sixers and, and they were... They, they were the ones who were having to come back from a very disadvantaged position. Yeah, so two wickets for Dotton up top after making 52 not out with the bat played a role uh, in the uh, final that got them into the grand final as well. So, again, you know, what a player she's been. She would have been in the Big Bash, Jeff, since, what, season one, Dotton, probably at her third club, I reckon. Um, but, um, you know, across the journey has never been in a position to win the tournament and, and she does here. So, yeah, I think that's a good story too, especially given that, um, she'll be one of these players now who, without a national contract, given that she's made a choice to move away from playing for the West Indies. And I think that's an important price signal as well. Remember that we're going to have the women's IPL next year, the women's PSL, the fair break, which has been moved into April, um, the 100, uh, all of the domestic commitments that um, semi-pro players now have um, in England and Australia. I say semi-pro, but increasingly professional. There were 20 more professional contracts announced last week by the uh, the ECB for the England regional structure. You know, it, it can be a big ask 
coming to the Big Bash with all of that in mind. There, there is so much going on. There's a smorgasbord of women's T20 cricket. It's no longer just the Big Bash and, and what was called the KSL, now the hundred. There, there are there are there are good options to be taken from senior players like Dotton and hopefully her winning the trophy will be um, something that helps bring other high quality West Indians to Australia and and keeps them here uh, instead of playing in other competitions when that choice does evolve. A little bit of sting in it as well for Susie Bates who did a lot of work at the Strikers um, and ended up leaving them now playing for the Sixers losers to her old club and Nicole Bolton as well we discussed her role at the Sixers a few weeks ago but she was she was the one who stood up when they were in trouble, had a strong partnership with Perry, played a dynamic kind of hand, pulled out the reverse sweeps, got things going. And that was the point where you thought, well, maybe they do have a route back into it um, until she got a bit unlucky, bottom edge, played back onto her stumps and, and and they weren't able to rally as much as they needed to. But the fact that they did rally to that extent was down to her. And then Maitland Brown comes in, who is just a, an increasingly rising star. I think she's got better and better since she came in playing for the Renegades a few seasons ago. And she was taking on everybody in sight, but you know, just couldn't quite get them close enough. Eventually they needed, I think it was 11 off the last delivery and, and she ended up chipping it down the ground and, and giving Amanda Wellington a wicket. But, you know, the, the fact that you've, got these players developing you've got you've got so much competition for spots and there's been this talk about the Australian team and whether they'll be as good you know with Rachel Haynes retired Meg Lanning on leave and maybe not going to come back Elise Perry later into her career but there are so many quality players who I think are absolutely ready to step up if given the chance. Yeah, and let, let's let's just um, congratulate Nicole Bolton as well at the end of her career. She's yeah. retired from all cricket at age 33 after this final. Um, of course, played, I think, three test matches, 51-day internationals. Great record, 51 days. An average of 41 with four centuries, including one in the World Cup back in 17. She made a 100 on debut at the MCG, if yep. memory serves me correctly, all those years ago. And, um, and uh, you know, at an important time in Australian women's cricket history. I think it's still her and Philip Hughes are the only two Australians to do that on 50-over debut. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But, yeah, I think that when we go back and the history of this generation is written, they'll, they'll look at players like Bolton who were uh, kind of part of the amateur setup, then semi-pro, then suddenly they're on full-time deals and, and they, they all collectively take that next step together. So even though her Australian career didn't continue much beyond that, she was a senior player at an important time and, yes, it can, completes her career by not winning the Big Bash, but, um, but yeah, she played a in a couple of finals, I think one with the Scorchers early on, if I recall correctly, yep. Jeff, and and yes, was a, a beaten finalist on, on Saturday, but the end of a fine career. So well done to Nicole Bolton, well done to the Adelaide Strikers as well. A blue triumph for the blue team at last. Uh, you were at the Pat Cummins press conference today, I'm led to believe, Adam. That, yep. Um, I feel, I mean, we've just talked more than enough in the last few weeks about Justin Langer, Pat Cummins, all the rest of it, but perhaps this is hopefully it's the last time we have to do it um, but it has been rolling on through the week it's been it's been back and forth there have been uh, attempts to sort of backtrack a little bit there was the, the the langer interview that got written up as incredibly hard smash up back pages across the news corps tables um, and cummins was being asked questions about it today as you would assume he would yeah, well, it won't be the last time we talk about it because it's going to keep bubbling along through the course of the next few weeks, I, I'd imagine. Yeah, it just turns out that when we recorded, it must have been last Monday. It was just before that podcast went live. So quite a bit's played out in the last eight days since we've done a, a weekly show. And yeah, that that quite contentious grab in the podcast describing sources as cowards, which implies, well, not even implies, it, it says expressly really that, that there were cricketers applying for him who he saw as cowardly. Um, and Cummins took that head on this morning saying that no one that plays cricket for Australia is a coward. Although he did acknowledge that Langer did try and patch it up on Channel 7. He did a, a spot on the news maybe on Friday or Saturday night when he, he explained that he wasn't talking about the players and it was all a bit all over the place, as you'd mm. expect with JL. But, yeah, like... The, I, I don't the, see how that could be interpreted any other way because, I mean, I've seen some people making comments like that in, in my direction and so on too, that, oh, well, he was he was talking about people who talk to newspapers anonymously. Uh, A lot of people who talk to newspapers anonymously are doing so for their own safety. Um, I mean, it's it's an an absurdly broad statement to say that an anonymous source is somebody who lacks courage when often it's entirely the opposite if you just want to talk about it in broad general terms. But in the context of talking about 
players going behind his back and talking to the media. There is no other way to interpret that. Like, it's absolutely nonsense to say that that's not what he meant. Yeah. I'd just add to that that this just shows, and I said this at the live show that we had last week at the Seafarers, which went very well, by the way. Thank you to Chris Rogers and Wayne Swan, who uh, uh, put in a cameo on stage with us, and to everybody who came. It was lovely. It, it to me, just shows a, a, a misunderstanding from Langer about how you are judged as a public figure. Mm. Uh, as a public figure, you are uh, you are in the public's thrall. That's a great thing most of the time. You make a lot of money out of that. You get to have a, a high-profile job. My old colleague Jim Chalmers said something that resonated with me at the press club the other week, that um, pressure is a privilege. Um, I think he was quoting Billie Jean King in saying that, but mm. it applies for these types of jobs as well. If you are in the public eye, when you fuck up privately, it ends up in public, and that's kind of the way it should be. So for Langer to think that, and, and, uh, and I should also say that he's been in the public eye for 30 years. He didn't just get here mm. five minutes ago when he took on this job. He knows the quid quo pro. He knows the, the, the trade-off for being well remunerated in a high-profile job that, that millions of people would love to have is that if you do things privately that people are unhappy with, often it will be of public interest, mm-hmm. not of public curiosity, of genuine public interest. And that's why when, I assume, players from his dressing room saw fit to speak publicly to reporters, not only last year but the year before as well, they did so because they felt like that was the, the best path to affecting change. And a lot of the time, as you say, that takes guts as well because if you get caught doing that, the repercussions are, mm. are serious. So, yeah, it, it's more than, than meets the eye here. But, yeah, the like it did, it was the, it was the catalyst or the, the, the starter's pistol for a whole range of reporting and it's, i think it's fair reporting that there is this ongoing stash between the golden generation and the, the current generation of players that'll be underscored by who's in the commentary box this week including justin yep. langer it was always going to be a big story first test match in perth langer being on commentary on seven every word of his will be scrutinized when he's on television and again that, that's kind of the way it should be the, the reason why he's a highly sought after commentator at the moment is because he's just finished up as the Australian coach and he has currency. What he says will make a difference. So, and and look, whether there's a big crowd in at Perth or not, well, we know there won't be. I just provide some like corrective context on that too. Jeff, we did a test match at the Wacker. In fact, I don't think you did it. You're in America at the time. I did a test at the Wacker in 2016 against Australia and South South Africa, Africa, where I reckon there were 12 or 13,000 people there on day one. When England haven't been here, day one, of a test match or a test match full stop at Perth has not been well attended. So I, I think we need to just calm the farm a bit on that. Is there an element of Langer in this about people snubbing this week? Maybe. You know, of course there is, at least at the margins. Hmm. Will there be protests about the players tomorrow? Will they boo the players tomorrow? Well, some some will, but that's okay. As Ian Healy said in an interview I was doing with him a couple of days ago, people booed Adam Gilchrist when he became wicketkeeper. People booed Ian Healy when he mm. came over to Perth in 1988 because they were pissed off that Tim Zura was dumped. People getting booed is not new. It, it'll be part of the, the conversation this week, I'm sure. I just hope that people don't overreact and and things settle down and and, um, and the, the, the focus can return to the cricket, but um, that's not likely to happen in the real short term because there will be a lot of focus on, on the external stuff. And equally, I, you know, I don't think you can be Justin Langer and say that you're hard done by because there's media attention on you when you're doing things like having full-page portraits on the back of the paper, which the, the Western Australian paper, which is owned by the same people who own Channel 7, by the way. So, yeah, you know, he's popping up as a commentator on 7 and it's absolute gold for them promotionally to be able to, Absolutely. you know, have a, a column supposedly written by him in the paper and to front it with this, I mean, it's an odd sort of setup. This this full length, staunch kind of Adelaide Crows power stance sort of portrait that they've got of Langer in a suit, um, standing next to the column that he, well, I'm, I'm going to guess was ghosted for the for the West Australians. So, I don't know. It's a it's a peculiar thing in which um, what people are saying doesn't exactly tally. But on something that we were mentioning earlier, I would like to reiterate one point that I made in a a piece that I wrote a couple of days ago as well. The idea that as a player you're doing something underhand and backward by speaking to the press, I think one thing that people don't take into account when they were saying, you know, why didn't they just go and talk to Langer? Langer was the most influential selector at that point and had 
the yeah. complete backing of Cricket Australia. There was no there was no suggestion that he wasn't going to be in the job at that stage. If you as an individual player rock up to that coach and say, I don't like the way you do things, I don't think that it works, I'm having difficulty playing under you, the likely ramification is that you're the one who will be booted out of the Australian setup. You know, not n- n- nobody else is, is likely to lose their job. So I think I think that was too great a risk to expect individual players to take. And the only way that any action could have been taken and eventually was taken was collectively. But it only got to that point where the players were collectively able to front Langer and tell him about the problems they had because Cricket Australia were willing to make it happen because there was media coverage of it. If there hadn't been press coverage of that discontent, then those summits with Langer in 2021 would never have taken place. Yeah, I think I think everything you said there makes a, a lot of sense. Um, it needed to come to a head publicly because he's a public figure. It's kind of the point I return to again. When these things are kept within the four walls, then you don't get the progress you want if you're if you're stuck in that in that slipstream as, as the players to an extent were. And at the end of the day, as we spoke about when they parted ways with Langer, it's the players' dressing room first and foremost, right? They should control their own destiny, and they wanted to go in a different direction, and and so they will. So yeah, it'll it'll be slightly exhausting over the next two days. But um, you're right about it being a great promotion for the the Channel Seven coverage. I mean, if I was sitting at home as a punter and I was picking which which broadcast to watch and, you know, all things being equal, you probably want to hear what Langer's going to say mm-hmm. um, when he's on commentary for the first time tomorrow. It'll be very, very newsworthy. So it continues. The other thing that, that, that I put to Cummins today directly, and I, I raised this as well in our chat with Tanya later, but I'll, I'll bring it up now as well. I said to him, like, oh, you know, you're taking the knee for the first time as test cricketers. They've done it in white ball cricket. And, you know, you, you've made comments about sponsorship and there's a view that, um, you are too woke, that Pat Cummins is too woke. What do you have to say about that? And he gave a great answer. He's like, um, well, you know, people will say what they want to say, but kind of reiterating something Barat said on on television a few weeks ago, actually, and we might be sports people, but that doesn't mean that we stop being human beings. And if we believe in, if, if we have beliefs, we're going to advance them the same way that we would as anyone else is entitled to in a democracy. So, um, yeah, I, I was really, um, really impressed by that. The press conference full stop was an absolute belter. It was sort of, quarter of an hour of Cummins being at his most open and most articulate and um, I'm sure that'll piss people off and there will be some people mm-hmm. who will be sort of forced yet further into their corners about him and about the state of the Australian team at the moment but it's clearly not uh, at least publicly uh, getting into the thinking of Cummins who's getting on and doing his job and, and doesn't mind if they uh, lose a bit of paint along the way as is to be expected in a high profile job. I did like the point that he made where he said that if there were people who were annoyed at them taking the knee, then they weren't the people that he was particularly worried about annoying. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, I think that's a, a it's kind of, yeah, that, that, and that's, yeah, that, yeah that, that, that is a great point as well. And you can see he thought about that line. Like, um, uh, he was always going to get asked about taking the knee today, you know, that he, that he formulated that answer and it was, yeah, it was well delivered. Uh, the David Warner story, that's moving on as well. There will be a hearing uh, to reconsider his ban from captaincy. The interesting part is that what is required for that to be changed is that there has to be obvious contrition um, and this is... This is something that might be a little tricky as a case for Warner to make because he's, you know, as far as we understand, thinks that he was hard done by in the whole situation. Uh, and so if, you, if you're coming to it needing to show a certain mindset, then maybe that's not the one that he actually has. Yeah, this was a really good angle taken by Dan Bredig in the, in the Age newspaper the other day that you need to show remorse for what you've done. And Warner thinks this is all bullshit. Not unreasonably. <laughs> What's happened to him? He thinks a lot of it is bullshit. Uh, and he said as much publicly. He certainly said it privately. Those conversations that have made that into the public domain, kind of in keeping with what we were saying before about Justin Langer. Not not that not that it's bullshit that he was banned, but the, the kangaroo court that was run in, in Cape Town and Johannesburg, that that did not constitute a process that was reasonable. But I'm sure he'll read the line, right? You know, Warner's a pretty savvy dude. He'll, he'll read the script in front of him. He'll say what he needs to say. Because... Look, he, he did say a media the line, engagement. Say the line. I didn't do say it. Say the line. Ding, say the line, Dave. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> this is the other thing that happened just just as we were finishing recording last week. It, um, 
we got the press release from Cricket Australia saying that um, that, that Warner is going to get this opportunity to be heard, as it were. And then he went on, and by coincidence, he was doing a, a media event at a boxing gym about an hour later, and a couple of the colleagues went along, and Warner was at his classic Warner best, you know, sort of saying one thing, and then kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the journos just to make sure <laughs> they knew exactly what he was really saying. He talked about the fact that they should have dealt with this nine months ago. I mean, maybe not nine, but I reckon six months ago. As soon as I realised he was going to be in the big bash, I should have got on top of this. It shouldn't have taken hundreds of newspaper articles and I don't know how many conversations we've had and others along these lines to, to get CA into gear. But it's going to happen now, better late than never. As we've also said, it's improbable they even need to be the captain of any of these sides in the short term because they're going to India earlier. There won't be the, the sort of the desire to make him club captain. But you can see it means a lot to him. Like having the black mark removed from his name, mm. it's reached the stage now where it's more about that, the symbolism of it, than I think about actually formally putting on the captain's armband again. Yeah, the possibility of being allowed to be captain if it came up rather than whether or not it actually will come up. Uh, the Sheffield Shield has been rolling on. This is curious. So that everyone's played five games at the moment. Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia still haven't won a game between them. And uh, Phil Jakes has been punted as the New South Wales coach because of this. Yeah, the New South Wales are in, are in second last spot with eight points, with South Australia on eight as well, Victoria on nine. Then you've got that big gap, Tasmania on 20, Queensland on 20, and West Australia already on 32. I mean, they are they are one foot in the Shield final, hosting the Shield final already. They play one more round before the break and then four after the Big Bash, sort of after that two-month hiatus with white ball cricket. But, yeah, the three games that were all completed over the weekend. South Australia drew with Queensland. Harry Nielsen, the keeper, um, got South Australia back into the game after they, were, after they were six for 47. He made 90, but, yeah, then Queensland responded well, took a healthy first innings lead. Um, Joe Burns playing his 100th game for Queensland, was run out for 85. Nathan McAndrew took a fifer for the Sackers, and then the second time around, Nathan McSweeney made 77 not out. Jake Lehman made 68 when they shook hands, so that was a... A fairly boring affair. New South Wales losing to WA was anything but. Um, that was at the SCG. So WA make 233 with Sam Fanning and Sam Whiteman making runs. Chris Green on first class taboo. At last. Takes four for 71. Yeah. And speaking of um, New South Wales spinners, uh, Adam Zampa's going to play this week in the mm. Shield team. He's got to go to India. He's got to go. He's got to go. I, I mean, I, think, on the I mean, here's the thing. I think he is going to go to India. Mm. I think I think he's going to go on that test tour. So they're they're getting some shield cricket into him at the moment, but also Chris Green. So I mean, I know Chris Green hasn't even been a fifty over bowler really, a little bit for Middlesex two years ago, but he's almost exclusively been a mm. a T twenty pro. But but there you go. New South Wales all out for ninety three in thirty eight overs, and and a chap I must say I know it was his ninth game. I had a look at his numbers. His ninth game for, for WA last week, but Corey Rocciccioli, what a name that is. Uh, four for thirty one. In the first dig, Matt Kelly, again, three for nine off seven. He's bloody consistent, Matthew Kelly. He won't be far away from getting in those squads, I don't imagine. And then WA don't do so well the second time around. They only make 127, setting um, New South Wales. A pretty chaseable sort of 270-odd, but they're all out for 134 again. Green top scoring uh, with 38. So um, he's taken five in the second dig, by the way. So Green, nine on debut with his off spin. Must have been a Bunsen there at the SCG. And then the other offie, Roger Cioli takes another four and they bowl out New South Wales and win the game by 133 runs. So eight wickets for Roger Cioli and Green, that nine for New South Wales. But yeah, Sounds I think there's good. a bit of interest there in, in a bit of interest in Green. Like, is that crazy? Um, is that crazy that a big tall, a big tall bouncing off spinner? I mean, just because he doesn't do it too often these days doesn't mean he can't. And I mean, they do have a big tall finger spinner in Ashton Agar who was playing in the PM's 11 in which Tajnaran Champal made 100 as well and looked exactly like his dad. I mean, it was it's <laughs> absolutely, it's really strange watching him bat. You know, it looks the spitting image of Shiv. And then in, on, on similar lines, uh, Matthew Elliott's son, Sam Elliott, uh, turning, yeah. out, turning out for Victoria, who ended up losing to Tassie by four wickets. But he played really well, took three for, made 80 not out, uh, you know, batting down the order. He was batting at nine, I think. And, you know, looked the goods, batting ball. Yeah, I watched a bit of this game. I went down there on Friday. So, like, tough ask on a on a lively track against Bird and Siddle and Nathan Ellis on morning one. They're all out for 121. But fair effort from Campbell Callaway to face 82 balls for his 23 on debut. And everybody is saying this is the kid to watch. Now, I mean, 
people say that about a lot of cricketers when they, they come do. through. But he was Aussie 19s. He's made a fuckload of runs for Melbourne in club cricket. So it was kind of a natural progression to see him in the Shield team, given that Chris Rogers is running a bit of a crash there this year, bringing through a lot of young blood. I know they were runners up in the Shield last year, but they're not at that point. Like, I think that um, without putting words in Chris's mouth, I, I, I feel like they're at the point of their development where winning the Shield isn't really the main thing. It's about getting a group of players together who can be a solid core for the next generation. And, and Sam Elliott will be part of that. He really high quality wicket to get going, caught in the gully off the shoulder of the bat, extra bounce, took three for 45. And as you say, came in and made 80 not out down the list in the second dig, batting with uh, with John Holland, who made 55 batting at 10. So another player who, you know, he was in the test squad only four or five months ago in Sri Lanka. So you couldn't completely rule out John Holland being part of the thinking for selectors with India around the corner. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, Bird so, and Siddle do it again. Siddle, Siddle on his birthday. Uh, and Bird finishes with, with uh, yeah, eight for the match, Siddle six for the match, Ellis. I mean, they're pretty bloody strong but fast bowling group for Tassie considering that Bird's nowhere near national selection and, and Siddle's retired. Like, they could go and win the whole thing this year. So John Holland's got to go to India. Uh, Nath, uh, uh, sorry, Chris Green's got to go to India. Ashton Agar's got to go to India. Um, Adam Zampa's got to go to India. <laughs> Mitchell Swepson, they got to go to India as well. I mean, or, or have they moved past Swepson? I'm not sure about this. Yeah. Um, another- I hope they don't, right? Like, I think, I think, don't you think that'd be a really bad, like, that'd be a really bad um, signal to send out to the Sheffield Shield community, I reckon. Like, Swepson's had two great seasons for Queensland. He's had an opportunity at test level that extends to four matches, two of which have been okay and two of which haven't really been mm. quite so okay. Like I think that if they said at this stage of his career, sorry, mate, after investing five years into you to be the next spin bowler for Australia, we're going to dump you and, and have bowlers overtake you, that would be a pretty ordinary sign. I, I hope they stay the course and show faith in him through the India series next year. Another exciting thing is that the Blind T20 World Cup is starting in the next few days. So the Australian squad leaves for India uh, a few days from now. They'll play Sri Lanka, South Africa, Nepal, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan in the group stage and then semi-finals on December 15 and 17, um, which we, we've been keeping a little bit of an eye on recently. I'm not sure why Stefan Nero's not in the squad. You might remember he made 309 not yeah. out um, about six months ago. He's not in the 17-player squad, so I'll have to dig around and, and find, out, well, find out why that is, whether there's an injury or something like that. Bill Jolly was at our live show the other night. He's the director of Vision Australia, who was having a chat with me about, uh, about the importance of radio commentary to the blind community uh, and the kind of work that, we'd done on you know broadcasting uh, unofficial commentary streams and and how that had uh, <laughs> helped some people out who wanted to follow the cricket back in the day uh, so it's it's nice to make those connections there and the national indigenous cricket championships are coming back so they've missed the last two years um, because with covid it was just too difficult to get squads from all over the country together in Alice Springs but that's going to happen Back up in the NT in February, there'll be seven men's teams, uh, five women's teams, and also this news that the MCC, uh, the, the Melbourne version, not the Marlebone version, has joined up as a partner. So they're going to be providing training camps for a lot of Indigenous players, and they'll also be staging T20s against some select gathered opposition at the MCG so that uh, some of those Indigenous players get the opportunity to use the MCG facilities and, and play out in the middle. So a, a few bits of good news coming through. Very good. We'll keep an eye on both the Indigenous Championships and, and the Blind T20 World Cup over the next few weeks on The Final Word, as we will continue to keep an eye on our numbers. How do we do it, Jeff? What's the story? We do it via a game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, here is how it works. Uh, This show is free, unbelievable. Who could fathom it? Uh, But some people help us fund the show because they're nice, generous people and they do so by sending in contributions that are not normal denominations of currency but very specific ones, numbers that relate to cricket in some way. For instance, Joel Emmonson, returning pledger. I reckon this might be Joel's third run around on the show over the last couple of years. $1.84 is the number, so one eight four means something about cricket. What does it mean? Okay, we've got a pledge here from Joel. It's as follows. My clue is that I don't remember this and I was hoping to watch the sequel, but it was postponed and now I believe I'm not allowed to watch it in person. Okay. Uh, Jeff. Huh. This is this is one of those ones where I, I had an idea and just bullseyed it first time and I'm feeling pretty happy with myself. So when this came in, 
it would have come in towards the end of the recurring lockdown periods in Melbourne. And that makes me think that I think for a lot of us at that time, we thought we don't really remember what life was like before that. And something we've talked about on the show before is that the last thing that was normal for us was the final of the T20 World Cup, the women's version in 2020. March 2020, March 8th, International Women's Day at the MCG, 86,000 in, all the rest. And they were expecting 91. They'd sold 91,000 tickets and 5,000 people didn't show up because they were a bit worried about this story about this virus that no one knew much about at the time. And we thought, oh, 5,000 people didn't come. That seems like quite a lot um, for, for this thing that may or may not be a problem. And then within about a week, you know, the Melbourne Grand Prix had been cancelled, everything. Within like three days, I reckon it yeah. was within. By the time we recorded the podcast, we did a podcast on the Tuesday to reflect on the World Cup final. And we were a bit, we didn't even mention COVID. We only in passing acknowledge the fact that the attendance wasn't higher because of it. Not even sure if it was called COVID at the time. Then the next podcast, so, you know, one week on, a few days on, we were in full catastrophe mode. Mm. So, yes, the world moved very quickly. They were extremely lucky to get that World Cup final away in hindsight. Absolutely. So my interpretation of this is that Joel's saying that was so long ago or it felt so long ago that he didn't even remember it or felt like he couldn't remember that final and he was hoping to watch the sequel which would have been the men's t20 world cup which was supposed to happen at the end of 2020 it was postponed and now he said at the time he sent this through i'm not allowed to watch it in person which i assume means i assume by that he means that it was moved to india in 2021 and then moved to the uae because of india's COVID problems and they couldn't have audiences in the ground so even if you had wanted to go and watch the final you would not have been able to do it i I think you i think you could if you were from there i think the challenge was getting in and out yes Uh, well from what i remember there were there was sort of a bunch of there were like families and friends sort of access for some of the players but mostly most of those grounds were empty if you remember back to that 2021 tournament that we were doing daily shows on at five in the morning which you know which means (laughs) that i don't remember much of it at all why does this relate to 184? Because in the March 8 World Cup final, Australia made 184 for four, batting first, Elisa uh. Healy, 75 off 39 balls, Beth Mooney, 78, not out off 54, drove them to that total. India got nowhere near it, all out for 99. And that, Joel, I believe, is your 184, and I'm pretty confident I've got it first time around. I'll always remember the Megan Shute getting Shafali Verma out um, early in the reply or in the chase and, and the response from Shoot after she'd taken some tap from her in the in the group game that India won at the Sydney Showgrounds uh-huh. a, a couple of weeks earlier. And I'll also remember the fact that it was um that it was uh, when Winnie was very little yeah. uh, and it was lovely. Um, Izzy came around that morning because it was her 30th birthday. Um, so we had breakfast for her at our place <laughs> whilst kind of watching the end of the final. And little did we know that none of us, well, we I don't think we saw each other at all really uh, for a number of months from that point forward. But... Uh, we, at least we had the 8th of March. And for Megan Shute, it was all about the change of length, if you remember, when she got bashed That's around right, by yeah. Shafali Verma. It was because Shute was bowling full and trying to swing the ball. And Shafali Verma loves getting on the front foot and hitting straight. So I think it was fourth ball of that over. Shute bowls back over the length, a little bit of angle across. Shafali Verma's not sure how to play it, pokes at it, little edge caught behind. Um, and that was the, the tactical masterstroke that meant that India never got off to that start. If you want to support what we do on the show, patreon.com forward slash the final word. The Discord channel is still humming along. I jumped on there very briefly yesterday, Jeff. I'm, I'm still kind of keeping away from it a bit because I've got to limit my distractions right now. I, but I do thank everybody. I say everybody. A few people got in touch after listening to Storytime and heard my knackered voice yesterday and wanted to check up on my welfare. I'm kind of fine. I've still got a cold. It's, it's still, you know, it's, it's, it's three weeks until I go back to the UK. Three important weeks was it three test playing weeks and I'll, I'll try and you know, play a pretty straight bat through that stretch of time with the exception of um, tomorrow night when we're in the perfect time zone to watch the Socceroos. That'll be 11 p.m. Perth time, whereas it's 2 a.m. Um, Melbourne time for the Denmark game, so and um, we will stay up a little bit later for that one. But beyond that, I'll be um, I'll be keeping um, I'll be keeping my bat and pad very close together um, <laughs> during these next few weeks. Right, I think that's time for a break on the show, and after that, we'll be chatting to Tanya Aldred and Matt Oldfield. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to the Final Word podcast. 
Final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And as promised, we have got down the line with us. In the UK, early in the morning, Tanya Aldred and Matt Oldfield having just released their kids' book, Ultimate Cricket Stars. Matt, I might start with you because we've corresponded a little bit. And when I said to you, my first thought when you talked about the cricket kids' genre was Glory Gardens and the Glory Gardens Cricket Club books that I read when I was when I was a 10-year-old, I guess, was the first one, Glory in the Cup. But to my way of thinking, there hasn't been an awful lot of this. Is, is that part of what inspired you to, to getting into the, uh, into the space? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been writing football books for kids for quite for quite a while now. Um, but my kind of my other sport has always been cricket. Um, and I've been trying for ages to try and get a, a publisher to kind of take a punt on it. Because basically, I think the market's huge, but no books quite cornered it since Glory Gardens, as you say, that kind of, which I think did really catch on um, both, you know, in Australia, but also all around the world. And my brother and I read those books religiously um, when we were growing <laughs> up. And it was funny because when we we finally found a publisher that was willing to, to, to work on a cricket book, and one of the first things they said to us was, oh, what about something like Glory Gardens? And I was I was blown away by the fact that they'd even heard of this series and were even talking about it. But in the end, we we did decide um, to go down a, a, a nonfiction route rather than the, uh, the than the fiction. But yeah, just just exploring that that world of cricket and trying to come up with something that I think the only thing that was really out there we were finding was really kind of practical manual kind of books about you know different strokes, different fielding positions and that kind of stuff, which, you know, fair enough if you're a young cricketer, but it's a bit dry, right? It's not um, it's not overly exciting. And we felt like modern cricket had all these amazing characters um, and people that, that, that we wanted to explore and tell stories about and kind of almost sell the game through the characters as well as the, the game itself. So, Tanya, the, the way I sort of read the book and, and really enjoyed going through each of the sections, that it's like kind of plot, part glossary, part encyclopedia, but but also uh, with a strong emphasis on, on telling these great stories in, in quite a relatable way uh, for, I guess, your target audience is people who don't know a lot about cricket to begin with and you're trying to give them that that inspiration and, and, and using the stories of the past to find the, the, the players of the future, something like that. Yeah, we. I mean, I think we thought that it would probably be picked up by um, either by children or by parents who had probably seen cricket, um, but maybe didn't, yeah, didn't have a, a sort of a full stack of um, of knowledge about it. But yeah, we, like Matt said, we thought that the the players was kind of the best way to go through it because there are so many, so many fantastic stories. I mean, human stories, I suppose. Once you start digging down, and we we did kind of. I mean, I actually remember having waking up in the middle of the night, one worrying about our selection because obviously, how many, how many have we got? Matt? Is it fifty? No, yeah, um, fifty, yeah, yeah, and and kind of thinking, oh God, we've left them out. Oh no, and it, it was sort of like a tiny <laughs> window into what it must be to be an actual selector because we had we had a list of a <laughs> hundred, was it? I can't remember, and we just kind of. Yeah, people I, came in and out. I think that was the hardest used part. Matt's dad as a sounding board for some of the older players, and then we used my son as some as a sounding board for some of the young of the kind of more modern players. But it was it was a really, it was a really it's been a really fun collaboration, and I hope that that kind of comes across in the in the book. I think probably like narrowing down that list to uh, to fifty was probably maybe the hardest part of the whole process. That and making those quizzes. Um, at the end of each section we've got these kind of which cricketer would you be and honestly I spent it it was an idea that I that I think we had quite early on and we thought oh yeah this would be great nice and easy honestly one of the (laughs) one of the hardest things (laughs) trying to work out those diagrams those kind of flowchart diagrams but we got there in the end you did and your reward when I went to see my nephews um because it it was the quiz was Matt's idea and he was the one who spent most of the time trying to work it out I uh I sent Matt a WhatsApp because my nephews were there working out which cricketer they were going to be. And that was the idea had actually uh, come to fruition. (laughs) And it's logical that you have to make some tough selection decisions because 
you've got this slant towards the modern era um, and that means bringing a lot of women's players into the fold, which, I, I mean, it shouldn't be surprising, but it, it is something that's still notable that, uh, I, I guess, for people of me and Adam's generation, we're used to growing up where all of the default cricketers and all of the default cricket heroes were men. Now that's a point where it's, it's not the case. And I liked the way that it jumped between timelines where you've got a profile of Jack Hobbs one minute, you've got Shafali Verma over the page, um, you've got a lot of the modern female players, Amelia Kerr in there, Sarah Taylor, Sophie Eccleston, these sorts of players, and players like Izzy Wong who haven't necessarily had huge long careers but they're still significant players in the current moment. And then looping back to someone like Catherine Fitzpatrick who's the oldest player and, and from the earliest era out of women's cricket in the book. So I, I found that that was, that was an interesting point of balance that it didn't have to be the absolute all-time you've played 200 test matches kind of selection criteria. It was who's going to be relevant to a kid picking up this book and reading it and half the kids picking it up and reading it are just as likely to be girls as boys. Yeah, balance, balance was always one of the things that we wanted to get in from the very beginning. We wanted to make sure that I think I think maybe some of it was from my experience of working on football books and knowing that obviously kids are focused on the, the here and now mostly and that kind of, you know, that either the rising stars or the current stars, that's kind of where their heads are mostly at. But they also grow up with these names of the past that, you know, fam older family members have passed on to them or they've seen clips on YouTube and stuff like that. So we wanted to have that kind of opportunity to to go back and look at some of the legends because I, th- I I think that's still a, a really relevant term to kids that of that age like they like learning about those heroes of the past those names that they didn't get to see live um so we wanted to make sure that was there as well as those kind of current names but yeah the balance was yeah that was kind of as I say that one of the hardest parts just trying to get get that overall balance but we wanted to make sure that yeah the women's game was was really well represented within it I think we did have we had so many kind of diagrams because we wanted to try and get a balance of people from most of the cricketing country I can't actually remember I think we got one from each cricketing country but yeah trying to get the balance between male male and female and all around the world and then particularly the middle order section was an absolute nightmare because you've just got a whole such a host of of stars and we just couldn't get everyone in there and you're just feeling that sense of guilt that you've left out you've left out someone who might be the one inspiration for a for a particular child but I hope we've got a, a good spread of people I quite like that middle order section because I mean it, and as you do it it's a nice sequence you know openers middle order all-rounders keepers spinners and so on through the different sections but it's a tour de force right it's Bradman followed by Viv followed by Tendulkar followed by Lara to yeah. start it right but kind of comes back to my, my previous point to an extent, but trying to recreate and reimagine these players from scratch. I mean, I suppose you had to go into it assuming that someone wouldn't know who Don Bradman is. And to the four of us and to probably everybody listening to this podcast, that that's wild. But to a kid who may not necessarily be exposed to cricket, yeah. and I know there's a big emphasis in the UK for the game to touch corners of the country that it hasn't done quite so well in, in recent decades, shall we say, that you, you need to assume that, the person picking up this book will have no idea who that kid was from Barrel. Yeah, because like he's just like in a in a in a world of data, he's just like the ultimate data man, isn't he? He's just it, <laughs> it, his achievements are so incredible that they're completely mind blowing. But as you say, you might because when when I was growing up, they had that Bodyline series on on TV, so he kind of became <laughs> a little bit more relevant again. But there must be lot loads of kids who just haven't heard of him who just have a passing interest in cricket. Well, equally, if you're a kid now, there's not a lot of Jim Laker clips that you're going to roll up and watch on YouTube, you know. There are Shane Warne clips that you can go and watch, but but even that, I mean, it feels really dated even to me in a way. I watch those and I think, did TV look that old back then? Because I remember watching it and thinking that it was fresh and current and new at the time, but it looks it looks like something from another era. But then you throw in spinners like Sophie Eccleston or Rashid Khan, who are spinners at these, that, that a, a kid could turn on the TV and watch playing in a, a game right now so I, I think that's a, a strength that it jumps between the very present and the distant past and mashes them together and says all of these belong to the same timeline of the sport yeah I hope so <laughs> I definitely hope so you 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 worry a little bit that you know that kids will anything that looks old it's a bit like a book when I've passed on some of my 
books that I read as a kid to my own children. You know, the book itself, the print's really small and there's no pictures and the paragraphs are already squished together and it, it just looks unappealing. And if you gave them a modern version of the, the book, they'd probably read them. So I guess what we're trying to do is was package up those old players that might look a bit fusty and uninteresting and just present them as if they are, you know, actual humans and amazing players of today and, and hopefully make them more accessible. Yeah, I think that's a, a really nice way of framing it up. And, and there's fun too, of course. I mean, at the end of each section, there's a, there's a what do you need to be this uh, for a fast bowler? Long legs, a scary scale and, and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, you're not, you're not making it all about the sort of nitty gritty of the history of the game either. It's about um, explaining the characteristics that, that, a, that a young kid might have if, and, and try to find their own way in the game. So I think it's, it's the beauty of cricket, isn't it, that it kind of takes all types as far as uh, um, being such a diverse sport, whereas some games you need to perhaps be genetically built a certain way to be successful. Cricket, it, it's never been quite that straightforward. Absolutely, yeah. And just sort of really going into those different those different roles within the game. As you say, it's quite um, it's quite a unique sport in terms of, the range of different qualities required uh, and so just kind of trying to uh, to show that and I think to be honest kids cricket's quite good making sure that players do all the different you know field bat bowl keep and you know do all the different parts but just showing that it's a game that hopefully can appeal to lots of different people so you know maybe you're not the best bowler in the world but you know maybe you've got this uh the power to hit the ball far, you know, whatever it is, but just finding different skills. I've got to say, it was, it's been so great working with Matt because obviously he had this, I don't know, is it 10 years you've written football books, Matt? Uh, about seven. Seven. So, but he's really used to working, <laughs> sorry, with the children's market and knowing, you know, just having an idea of what will appeal and, and how to phrase stuff and kind of how to set stuff out in a way that, you know, if you're just churning off, things for the Guardian and stuff, you don't, I, I could find myself going into way too much detail coming, going onto quick info. I think the first profile I wrote was David Warner for Matt and it was about a thousand words long. <laughs> it's like, no, Tanya, this is way too long. You do not need all that detail. So it's, it was, it's been great working with him. You were quite sympathetic to David Warner in that profile too, which I found interesting. Was was that particularly challenging, working out how to write about the sandpaper scandal in a way that a kid would understand yeah, that was also it, a bit generous? Maybe a bit generous, but I've always, I've always felt a little bit sympathetic towards him. I mean, your book, Jeff, that I thought you had a little bit of sympathy towards him as well. I felt like he carried... He carried the can and there's obviously there's other stuff going on that we don't know about and he's a bit of a crazy mixed up kid and yeah, I did I do feel a little bit of sympathy for him. It feels like you've got the bug for this now, Tanya. You've written obviously this book with Matt. You've been involved in Mo and Ali's book this year, which is also targeted at the the young adult audience, I suppose. I'm not sure if it's it's exactly the same crossover as far as the market. But you know, again, youth and cricket, which haven't been written about an awful lot before, is is this something now we can expect more of from you? Um, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd really love to. I mean, there is a bit of an issue with getting stuff published, basically. So I think it probably depends a little bit how both of these books do. I loved reading as a kid. I love cricket. I've loved reading to my own children. So, yeah, I mean, it's a perfect... For me, it's been a wonderful experience, yeah. And just... I've done a little bit of teaching in primary schools and I just, you kind of know how important it is to find a book for a child that they actually want to open, whatever that is, whether that's, you know, a book about ballet, a football book, you know, an adventure book or, or perhaps a series. Sometimes kids have got, you know, they once they've read one book, they've then got the bug and they will then go on and read six or seven mm. others. So it's just kind of getting the right book to the right child. And if you can write that right book for the right child and it, it gives them a a love of reading, then that that feels like a, an amazing thing to be able to do. So yeah, I'd love to basically, but it's just finding someone who'll publish them. I don't know if we, I mean, I'd love to do another one with Matt if they'd let us do version book two. We could call <laughs> those, all those people that we'd left out of our original selection list. Yeah. <laughs> well, half, half the work's done already. <laughs> We've been wanting to talk to you as well on the show, Tanya, 
because of movements in, in Australian cricket recently, the, the work that you've done on the Next Test campaign, which is about bringing attention to climate change and the effects on cricket, it's been particularly interesting the last few months in Australia to have a captain in Pat Cummins who basically has just said uh, climate change exists, it is a problem, we should probably do something about it and we should maybe stop being sponsored by fossil fuel companies that are the major contributor to making it worse. And for having said that, he's been absolutely smashed up by right-wing media in Australia. It's been really interesting to see an Australian captain become somebody who will be targeted by the kind of outlets who would normally back up that position no matter what. I'm interested in your, what you've made of that from afar and, and from having a national captain who, who is willing to speak up about it, even if it is only in, in a relatively basic way. Yeah, I mean, he's not just talking about it in his foundation. They've, you know, they're actually doing um, tangible things. They're putting up, putting up the solar panels on the, on the clubs and stuff. And they seem, he seems to have got a, quite a cohort of players behind him. So he's not just a, I mean, you would know you know him more than me, but he seems like he is actually an inspirational guy, um, and he's able to carry people with him. So it feels like, you know, he's the first captain who's put his head on the line over this. And there must be, you know, the other people, captains around the world, they must, you know, they're intelligent guys, but they've not felt the need to talk about it. So hopefully, his, you know, him raising his voice will lead others to follow him because he's obviously he's the most high profile high profile cricketer who has spoken about it but I know he's got because he's got I don't know is the the people who signed his cricket for climate declaration there's lots of uh, quite high profile names there from Australia so it would be nice to see some english cricketers talk about it some of the women's team have done i know they've been spoken to by the um sustainability manager from ECB and there's got you've got a couple of them who've gone vegan and they talked about um I know offsetting is quite controversial but they had talked about offsetting their ashes tour last year I'm not quite sure what happened there but I kind of think there are things that are bubbling under but the fact that Pat is prepared to talk about it so openly and take the flak is is very important it's kind of what you've been talking about for years as well isn't it the cricket it's not just about cricket kind of accounting for its own carbon footprint it's about using the the massive megaphone that its leaders have at its disposal to tell the story to more people so it isn't just about i suppose activists and politicians leading the charge it's about sports people playing their role as well and cummins has been big on this indeed i, I asked him a question today to the effect of you know people are saying you're too woke pat what do you say to that and his view was well I'm, I'm i'm a human being too i'm not just a cricketer but a human being with a, a fair bit of authority so yeah maybe that will provide an example to others around the cricketing world that they too can get their hands dirty on this topic yeah yeah for sure i mean sports just got such an enormous platform and it has a way of talking to people that politicians don't you know lots of people just switch off when politicians talk or when corporations talk and sport has a way of, of slicing through that so yeah, I mean, he's very impressive. He's shining a light on something which is obviously a major problem to humans' inhabitation of the world, really. It's such a massive crisis. And, I mean, you can, you, I'd be really interested to know what you guys thought about. Do you feel like things are tipping in Australia towards more acceptance of the issues? We just had that recent report saying how much trouble Australia's in, basically. I think what we can try to read from the last federal election result suggests that that is the case, where a lot of traditionally conservative, relatively uh, inner urban electorates that tended to vote conservative instead voted for independent candidates who were, you know, politically not too far, not too divergent from conservative candidates aside from being uh, advocates for action on climate change. And so that seems significant, that there there is there is a, enough of a recognition that this is already happening. It's already past the tipping point. The effects are already being seen. The in, incredibly hot summers that we've had, that we started having in, in the last 10 to 15 years, the bushfire seasons that we've had, the flood seasons that we've had, the increasing extremity. And, and it's it's kind of blackly funny in a way when you hear these things like, oh, this was a hundred year storm, but you're getting one every four years. These kinds of things that are going on, you know, hopefully that means that there is 
more of a public recognition of it, um, but there's still a very strong kicking and screaming resistance to it in certain very loud and influential sectors of of the media and, and yeah. of politics. Yeah, and for my part, I think picking up on that, I, I, my sense is that those who are holding on as long as they can to the line that this is all bullshit. And remember that that was a prevailing view for a long time from some of the major media organisations that it's just not a big, it's, this doesn't matter that much, that our um, short-term economic wellbeing is more important than our long-term sustainability um, as a country and indeed as a planet. And now I, I feel like those voices are seen as increasingly hysterical. Um, they just don't have the same authority as they once did. Yeah. Even there was a state election in obviously state politics is a little bit different to what Jeff's describing there, but the, the biggest newspaper or the News Corp newspaper could not have campaigned harder for a change of government and the people for the third time in a row just ignored them. And I hope and want to believe that if that's the case at a, at a statewide election, and, and hopefully it remains the case when it comes to um, the handling of, of issues such as climate change, which deserve to be debated by serious people and not just those who see the issue as an opportunity to, to advance their position in the culture war. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the other thing about, well, cricket, I'm assuming in Australia it's the same as the UK, it's always attracted people from, from you know, both sides of the political debate. So you've had real left-wingers and then you've got, you know, traditionalists in their MCC ties and stuff. But I think in the same way that climate change is also... You know, it's not just a one-party issue. It does attract people from across the political yeah. the political divide who are worried about it. So I think if someone like Cummins can talk about it, is a way of uniting. People can unite behind the Australian cricket captain in a way that they couldn't unite behind a political leader particularly. Another divisive topic on on your side of the uh, of the lake, the lake, many oceans, ten thousand miles, not not the lake, is private investment or private equity in the hundred. Now, I don't I don't propose that we talk about this all day, Tanya, because it's a, a complicated <laughs> issue. But um, there, there have been reports this week that up to seventy five percent of the hundred might be sold um, to private investors, and we know that's effectively a proxy for eventually being owned by IPL clubs, as as has been the, the pattern in, in recent years. Uh, I mean, I haven't had a chance to tap into too much of the sentiment in the UK, but it would mean a massive windfall in the short term, but I suppose at what cost? Yeah, exactly. I mean, my natural reaction to that amount of money is to kind of wrinkle my nose suspiciously and and, and wonder, you know, what what does it mean beyond, like you say, riches, initial riches? You know, what does it then leave you with? I think there's been, it's been met sceptically by a few people. Um, obviously, the 100 itself is very divisive. So I've been trying to work out, I haven't really got a business head, I've got to admit, but try, you're trying to work out, well, if they sold it for this amount of money, which I don't think they're going to do, the sort of smoke seems to suggest that it would be too early to go, that if they were to sell it now, you know, that there's more potential for growth, basically, and they could probably sell it later on for more money. But if they sell the competition, then they lose they lose control of it basically, and they can't mm. they can't get rid of it should they want to. I think they're they're tied until twenty twenty eight anyway, aren't they? And I guess they can't. I don't know if they can even control the size of the window that it goes over. Do they then lose control of? Do they then have to sort of? I don't know what they do about the test players. Do test players then get signed up more completely with the? franchises i know i've i've read stuff about people saying that eventually you'll get players signed up with franchises and then just leased out back to their counties which sounds quite dystopian but maybe that's the way we're going um <laughs> but yeah i find such vast amounts of money difficult to get my head around really and you know that I mean, ca counties are cash strapped, so whether that would mean they'd go for it, I don't know. All right. Thanks, Tanya Aldred, as always, for being a, a regular visitor to our parts here on The Final Word and Matt Oldfield as well. The book's called Ultimate Cricket Stars. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. And, yes, uh, I, I think if uh, if you've got kids of a certain age, what a great thing it would be to have it under the Christmas tree this year. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, as we say goodbye for another week. We thank Tanya Aldred and Matt Oldfield again for their work on Ultimate Cricket Stars. It was nice to catch up with Tanya. We've been planning on doing that for a while, but she's busy 
we're busy, so we haven't quite had that long climate change discussion. But they're, they're doing some work around the next test at the moment, Jeff, and they're, they're doing a little reboot. So we'll see fit to have her back on the show, you know, in the next two months. Maybe when I go back to the UK, I'll go and visit her up in Manchester and we'll have a nice long sit down and, and talk about cricket and climate change again. Well, one thing that we know is that uh, the issue is not going away. And, and, and one thing we've mentioned before but didn't in that conversation is that it's not just about cricket having a voice, but it's about cricket also being the litmus test. You know, cricket is a sport that is going to be affected by it more than most. Yeah. You know, it's it's so reliant on weather, it's so reliant on climate, it's so affected by droughts, by floods, by heat that all of those things are, are going to increasingly affect the game that we all love over the decades to come. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, as we sign off, a, a quick reminder that we'll be making daily shows throughout the course of the Australia West Indies test series starting tomorrow you'll be joining me in perth for that so we'll be outside the ground somewhere nice it's beautiful here at the moment not a cloud in the sky um, and i've only received a few people getting stuck into me on twitter it's not even been um not even been the full court <laughs> press i was expecting so all good here looking out my hotel window right now and i'm, I'm quite pleased that it's warm because it's barely been warm as i've been making my way around australia so we'll take it other than that uh we, we have the the usual rhythm of, of weekly shows and, and weekend shows through story time, although the story time this week we might have to get a little bit creative, but we'll work something out. If you want to be part of the Patreon uh, and Discord channels, all you need to do is patreon.com forward slash the final word, and you can help us keep making as many shows as we are, not just through this summer, but then the Border Gavaskar series in India, uh, the Ashes next year, the World Cup in India, it's on and on. It can pack a punch as well, all this work in terms of uh, making it all that up. So if you want to contribute to helping us do what we do, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Right, that's it from us for this weekly show, but we'll be back in your feeds as always. Can't stop, won't stop. It's the final word way. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. We'll see you next time. Bye. So you know what I meant here. I had to go.